So I was asked a question this week that you may be surprised to know uh, pastors, or at least this pastor, are not asked all that often. The question was, why are you a Christian, Alan? You ever been asked something or a question about something that is so fundamental to who you are, so woven into your identity that, that you struggle to articulate exactly why it is that way? That was me a little bit this week when I was posed with this question, why are you a Christian? I, I felt myself stumbling around at first. I think I started with, um, well, I was born into a family that, that took me to church whether I wanted to be there or not, right? I, I guess at some basic level, I, I'm Christian because my parents are. Today's Children's Sunday, we didn't have that growing up where I was, but I can guarantee you if we did, I would have been there as a child. I kept kind of stumbling around trying to find exactly what it was I wanted to say, and I think I next landed on the whole eternal salvation bit, I guess I'm a Christian because in Jesus Christ, God, God gives eternal life to those who follow him. But if I'm being honest, it still felt like something was inadequate in my answer. Something was missing. It felt a little shallow. It felt a little selfish even, as if my whole answer was based on this what's in it for me principle. I mean, honestly, I felt a little bit like the lawyer in our parable today. How does it begin? He, he says, um, or rather the text introduces him as wanting to justify himself. Who's my neighbor? He asked Jesus, which the commentators are quick to point out is really a polite way of asking, who is not my neighbor, Jesus? Right? He, he wants to know, what is the minimum I have to do here, Jesus? There's a shallowness here. There's a selfishness. There's, there's a legalism. There's something missing. And so Jesus' answer, I think, Jesus' answer is meant to toss both the lawyer, but also me and you into the deep end. You want to know, he says, you want to know what it takes to follow me? You want to know uh, what it means to be a Christian, Jesus says? Well, buckle up. Let me tell you a story. So there was a, a guy who was half dead, left in a ditch, Jesus began. And then a priest, he comes by, and what happens? Passes by on the other side. And then a, a Levite, he comes by and does what? Same thing, passes by on the other side. Now we have to be careful because across the years there have been plenty of flawed interpretations of this parable. The worst of, e of which, of course, is the tack that goes in the anti-Semitic direction. And that interpretation, the priest and the Levite, they stand for all the Jewish people, and the man in the ditch is Jesus, and, and the Jewish people just pass him by. 
Other interpretations look and they say, well, listen, the Levite, the priest, they're elevated people. Culturally, it would have been beneath them to stop and help this man. Still others will go and they'll say, well, there were clear purity laws concerning the life of these Jewish religious leaders. Laws that would prohibit them from touching the body of someone who who might be dead. But if you go sit with some of the Jewish scholarship on this text, what they'll tell you is the Jewish hearers there with Jesus long ago, as well as Jewish hearers today, they would know what's going on. They would know that these religious men had one job. There was one command in Jewish law that would have trumped all the others in this situation. Their one job, even if it was the Sabbath day when they were passing by, their one job was to preserve a life. And they failed. They failed at the one command that they should live by more than any other. And it begs the question, why? Why did they fail at this task? You know, Martin Luther King Jr. once preached on this text, and he landed in his sermon on an answer to that question, why? A one-word answer. He says, the reason the priest and the Levite fail to help the man in the ditch, the reason they pass by on the other side, is because they are afraid. Fear. That's the reason they fail. King explains in the sermon saying, you know, uh, my wife, Mrs. King, and I, we took a trip not long ago to Israel, and we rented a car and took that journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Anyone who's been there will tell you it is a daunting journey because you go from about 15, 1,600 feet above sea level in Jerusalem all the way to about 900 beneath sea level in Jericho, right there on the shores of the Dead Sea, the lowest point in earth. And you do all of that over maybe 20 miles. It's a steep descent. Then, in Jesus' time, it was a road known as the Bloody Pass. It was so dangerous. So King, in the sermon, he says, you know, there we are taking this dangerous, windy road down to Jericho. And for the first time in my life, I could imagine what it must have been like for that priest and Levite. Surely they were afraid, right? Maybe they were afraid for one thing, that the robbers were still around hiding behind some boulder. Or maybe even they were afraid the man in the ditch was a ploy. He was faking it. He was going to spring upon them as soon as they stopped to help. He says, I was able to imagine for the first time that the mindset of this priest and Levite must have been, if I help this man, what will happen to me? But then, along comes a Samaritan, Jesus said. Now, it's hard to overstate just how shocking the Samaritan's introduction into this parable would have been for that audience Jesus is telling this story to. Right? There's a thing that's often referred to as being the rule of threes when you're reading Jesus' stories, and particularly the parables. Jesus loves 
to tell stories with three people, the first two of which are meant to get it wrong. They're meant to tee you up for the third person. So those original hearers there at Jesus' feet, they know who Jesus is about to spring on them. Priest gets it wrong. Levite gets it wrong. Wait for it. Here it comes. A good Israelite citizen to save the day. But no. A Samaritan. Right? The Samaritan is not meant to just be the foil for the neighbor you thought you liked until they put that Trump or Biden sign out in their yard. No, the Samaritan is the enemy. The Samaritan is the oppressor. Amy Jo Levine, a professor at Vanderbilt Divinity School, she says, in modern terms, this would be like Jesus going from Larry and Moe to Osama bin Laden. A Samaritan comes along and shifts that question. Remember, King imagined that the priest and Levite must have been asking themselves, if I help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan approaches it with a different question. The Samaritan's mindset in this parable is, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You know, King preached on this text on April 3rd, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. He had gone there to join with the striking sanitation workers in that city. It's part of his I've been to the mountaintop sermon where he tells his audience, I have been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land and I am not afraid. I don't know what will happen to me, but I am not afraid. And the reason I am here tonight, he said, is because I ask myself, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That is the question King said on April 3rd, 1968. And less than 24 hours later, he was dead. Blessed are the merciful. Friends, we have one job as followers of Jesus Christ. And that job is to practice mercy. And to practice mercy is to shift the question. To practice mercy happens when we overcome our fear and move from that shallow place of what's in it for me to those deeper waters of what about my neighbor. And if you're like the lawyer, wondering what the limits to that mercy are, then you should be as scandalized by Jesus' answer as all those people at his feet were long ago. What is it the lawyer asks? Jesus, who's not my neighbor? And Jesus' answer, no one. No one is not your neighbor. When you go and watch a recording later of our children's Sunday that they'll be leading at 1030, they keep evoking Mr. Rogers. We're going to sing at the beginning 
Mr. Rogers' neighborhood theme song. There's a quote on the back of the bulletin from Mr. Rogers, right? It's, it's, it's perfect. Because Mr. Rogers was this cardigan-wearing Presbyterian minister who spent his entire life saying everyone, everyone has a home in God's neighborhood. It all leads me back to that question I got asked earlier this week. And it makes me wonder, why are you a Christian? Is it because your family took you to church when you were a kid? Is it because you like the sounds of a get-out-of-jail-free card? Or is it because you know what it feels like to be in the ditch, but not forgotten? Is it because you know what it feels like to receive someone's forgiveness after passing them by? Do you know what it feels like to be saved by the very person you least want to save you? I kept stumbling around with my own answer to that question. And I think what I eventually ended up saying was something like this. Yes, in Jesus Christ, we have have received the immeasurably good news of eternal salvation. And that is part of why I am a Christian. But that's not the only part. What keeps me going in the faith, I said, is Jesus' invitation then to live a life in response to that good news to invite others to that that table of grace, to notice and care for the ones that Jesus noticed and cared for, the poor, the oppressed, the enemy, the imprisoned, the left for dead. But most of all, what keeps me going as a Christian is Jesus' invitation to love my neighbor, despite their brokenness. Simply because God in Jesus Christ has loved me, has loved you, despite our own. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said. For they will receive mercy. Friends, may we go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.